Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Greetings to you, Christina. Beautiful day. Gorgeous. Yeah, love <laughs> it, it actually rained here in California. Wow. I know. It's our rainy season. We do have seasons. Uh, yeah, I, I wish it would be more of a rainy season, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I think there'll be some more. Yes. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host along with Christina today on Magical Medical Tour as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy for optimal health. And today we're going to be in one of my favorite uh, galaxies, nursing. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> now, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Um, now, just to let you know, you might be listening to this show or watching this show a month from now, or a year from now. It really doesn't matter if you, if you submit your question, we will make sure that it is sent to our guest or any one of us over here and uh, shall respond. And uh, if you are listening to this um, through iTunes, iTunes or as a podcast, simply call us at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK, and be sure to leave us your contact information. Thank you, Doc. Thank you very much. Yeah, we love the questions and the replies. Uh, Keep them coming. And we always try and get back to uh, you with those things, especially from our guests. So Mm -hmm. that's a cool thing. We (laughs) like that. You know, Christina, in medical school, the first two years of medical school is all uh, in the classroom studying and everything. It's not till our third year of medical school that we actually get to go into a hospital, go to the floors, start to see patients. Uh, So that starts in our third year of medical school. Mm. And probably one of the most important things that a young medical student can learn is that nurses rule. (laughs) (laughs) they they know everything they can make your life happy they can make your life miserable maybe i should become a nurse (laughs) (laughs) well it takes a lot and we're going to find out today what it takes to become a nurse and maybe it'll inspire you so we're going to be interviewing uh, a colleague and friend of mine Nicole Graves, who's a nurse who has a great story. We, we, we used to work together in the emergency department. We'll cover a couple of emergency stories. And, and then she has uh, some very interesting medical issues, and, and we'll see where she went with those issues. Uh, so uh, before we meet Nicole, I wanted to say that uh, this past weekend, I got together uh, with a group of people that worked in the very first emergency department that I worked in back in 1975. There were about 26 of us, and we had a great time all getting together and talking and telling stories and everything. made me realize even more how important nurses are in every aspect of, of medicine, especially when dealing with uh, patients. The, the nurses, you know, I say they rule, but there's so much more than that. They're the, they're the confidant of the patient. They're the information that gets from the doctor to the patient sometimes and back from the patient to the doctor Really important. And so I want to introduce Nicole Graves, my friend and colleague. Nicole, welcome. Hi, Glenn. How are you? I'm good. Hello, okay. Nicole. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on our show. Thank you. 
So, Nicole, as the medical guide, I usually try and tell our audience what we're going to do. So first, we're going to find out about the heart and soul of Nicole Graves. Uh, and I think the whole program is actually going to be about the heart and soul of Nicole <laughs> and the heart and soul of nursing and what it what it takes. And we're going to just find out a lot of things that you've done in your life uh, since we've been together and how life has uh put some obstacles in your way, how you dealt with the obstacles, and where you are today. How's that sound? Sounds good. Good. So we always start out with a simple question about what got you into being a healer? When did you know? What were the influences? Things like that. I was fascinated by biology and human anatomy and physiology as a child. And in fact, I received my first Gray's Anatomy book when I was 12. Wow. So I kind of had an inkling that that's where I was heading. But then and, um, I was going to say, as life went on, I did end up going to nursing school, and um, I was able to utilize the things that I had learned in my childhood about anatomy and physiology and biology. I was able to put those to use as a nurse. Why nursing? Why not uh, something else? It, because nursing is about its professional caregiving, and so um, it's this. It's the, it's about empathy, and I've always felt that way about you know when interacting with patients. I did have this deep seated feeling for them, for each patient that I was responsible for caring for. I took immense pride when we were able to help them, save them, whichever word you wish to use, and I was always very proud to be a part of that. And mm -hmm. I have always taken it very seriously. And it's, I think, part of my core to um, assist them in their journey in um, solving their health problems. Nice. So what, do, what is the training required to become a nurse? It kind of, it, there are a few different tracks. Um, they do have um, licensed practical or vocational nurses, and that is um, a usually a one-year program, and they end up with, um, it's like a technical, I don't think they end up with a degree, I'm not really sure, but it's usually a one-year technical program, and then they take um, boards in the state that they're going to be practicing to get their license. I'm a registered nurse, and I attended a two-year program in San Angelo, Texas, and um, received my Associates in Applied Science of Nursing and then sat and took my state nursing boards to get my license to become registered. But traditionally, now nurses will either become an LPN or they will go to a nursing program. And the new standard is normally a bachelor's degree. But there are still some associate's degree nursing programs out there, too, today. And there are nurses that work in neonatal units and intensive care units and emergency departments and uh, in surgery and outpatient clinics. Is there different training to go into each of those, or is that a choice after you become a nurse? Well, you do have to be trained in each department. And um, when I was initially in school and right out of school, I worked in a neonatal ICU, which um, you take care of premature or sick newborns. And so you do have a usually a three-month training to, we call it orientation, where more senior nurses take you through training to teach you how to care for these patients. When you talk about neonatal, just to give uh, our audience an idea, what's the size and weight of a neonatal patient? Well, a neonatal patient is 
is I think sometimes we think of those as premature babies, babies that are born under 40 weeks of a pregnant of a gestation of pregnancy. But um, usually, I think if I remember correctly, the cutoff used to be under 37 weeks was considered a premature baby. I mean, you have some that um, we would call micro preemies that were born, you know, like at very, very early, like around, you know, 23, 24 weeks. And they have different needs than a baby that's born, you know, at 36 or 37 weeks. They have different, um, they're at different stages of development. So they have different care needs. And uh, give us a weight and a, and a length, approximately. Well, like a, a, 24, a 24-weeker may weigh um, a pound, pound and a quarter, and be maybe 11, 12 inches long, where, um, you know, once they've been in there and cooked a little longer, um, you know, once they're closer to their, their due date, they tend to be, you know, 6 to 8 pounds and, you know, 19 to 22 inches long. Christina, could you imagine taking care of something that weighs a pound that has all the body parts and all the things that need to be working? That's that's pretty amazing that we can do that. Yeah, and you think about think of what the size. Remember, we talked last time about the cardiovascular system mm. and circulatory th- system. Think about the size of a blood vessel of a one-pound baby. Mm when a nurse has to try and get an IV started so that we can give medications to them at times. Oh, that's amazing. Pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, what about continuous training, Nicole? Well, every, um, for our, we have to renew our license every two years. It depends on the state you're in. It's based by state. Mm-hmm. And we do have to um, take continuing education. And I live in Florida, and so we have to have, I believe, 24 uh, continuing education units every two years in order to renew our license. And there are some um, mandatory courses that we have to take, like, you know, it may be on medication errors, domestic violence, caring for the aged, things like that. Right. Now, you talked a little while ago about when you got interested in, in nursing because of empathy. What other characteristics and traits do you think a nurse should have if somebody is listening to this show today? They've, they've just listened to some of the um, aspects of what the training is. But a lot of people can go through training but maybe should not be a nurse. What kind of things, uh, characteristics should a nurse have in your mind? I think a nurse should have a love for learning because we can always learn something new. Um, you have to have um, a proficiency in mathematics because we do um, something we call dosage calculations. Mm. A physician may order a medication in the um, in the strength that it comes in, but it may be in a um, intravenous solution or something. So we may have to figure it out on based on the patient's weight or some other factors. Uh, to determine how much to actually give the patient. So nurses have to do that, and we use math to do that. And let me, before, you, before you go on, let me say how clearly important that is, especially in the emergency department, but everywhere. You know, dosages of medicines are so important because if you give the wrong dose or the wrong medicine, uh, lots of problems can occur. So that is that is very important, and we just take that for granted. As doctors, we always say, you know, give the give the patient this, and then we go on to the next thing. But actually, the nurse is the one that gets it, prepares it, makes sure it's the right patient, and then gives it to that patient, and then we're starting to look 
to see if we can get the results of that. Okay, keep going. <laughs> so I think it's also important to um, have a, um, a love for science, you know, because mm-hmm. the, of the human body, biology, anatomy, physiology, and an interest in um, seeing people improve in their health. So I think those are very important. Excellent. So <clears throat> you've been in neonatal, and you and I met in emergency medicine, where we both worked together in an emergency department. What was it like working in an emergency department for you? It was exhilarating. And I, um, I had worked as an emergency medical technician years ago when I was um, first in college. I was like, I think, 18 or 19 years old. And I really enjoyed interacting with the emergency room nurses when we would bring patients in. And so um, working in the emergency room with you, I found very enjoyable. It was very exhilarating, always wondering what the new thing was that was going to come through the door and trying to anticipate it and be ready for it. It was very exciting. Who's coming in with what? We never knew. Right. We never knew. So um, do you have an emergency story you could tell us? You want to I share have one something? Kind okay. of basic. I um, was working on a day shift, I believe. I remember I was working a night shift. I'm sorry, and we had a young boy come in who um, presented with the common, you know, fever and not feeling well. And so we brought him in and we took care of him. And he went home the next day and he passed away. And I took it personally because I felt like I had done something wrong, but. Um, you were the one you called me and kind of talked me off. You know, I was thinking, that's it. I'm despondent and I'm not going to be a nurse anymore. I don't belong doing this because this is too hard. And you were the one who um, reassured me and talked me into returning. Hmm. So it, it taught me that, you know, sometimes patients do pass away. And despite us doing our utmost, everything we can possibly do for that patient, sometimes they do still pass away. And I think that's one of the things that we may take it personally and feel like it's a failure on our part or even professionally that we fail somehow. But um, sometimes there's always going to be a percentage of patients that do pass away despite all of your efforts. Yeah, that brings back a lot of memories when you said that. So, okay, uh, we don't work together anymore, so you can you can confide in me a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't tell anyone what you said. So okay. what, do the nur- what do the nurses talk about when they get in a room together about the ER doctors? Oh, mostly, I was going to say, you know, whether they're um, nice Christina, to work don't with listen or not, to this. Whether they're nice to work with or not, whether they know what they're doing or not. Um, if they're um, annoying <laughs> when your night shift back in the day when I worked ER I don't know if it's still the same way but um, between patients the ER doctors would go to a lounge and sleep in between patients and then we would call them when a patient would come in and some of them would give us a really hard time on the phone you know yeah. trying to encourage them to hey come out and see this patient and they'd be like but I just fell asleep how can you call me and you know so the ones that did that I wasn't so crazy about the ones that came right back out or stayed out there with us. Mm-hmm. Those were the better ones. Do you ever think? <laughs> do you ever think that the doctor was making the wrong diagnosis and you guys knew what it was? And when is the doctor going to finally get it? Yes, and the doctors <laughs> that were able to put the ego aside and listen to us 
Those uh, were the ones we tended to get along with a little better. Yeah. See, Christina, that's what I meant. Nurses rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really did happen like that. It was good. Uh, so after you left emergency medicine, where'd you go then? To um, North Florida. And I went back to um, a neonatal ICU. Mm-hmm. And I worked there for about three years. And then my husband got orders to Montana. And I went up there back into another neonatal ICU. And then while I was there, I was recruited to work in a brand new endoscopy center. Explain so I, that. Explain an endoscopy, endoscopy center. Is, um, where they do upper endoscopies. They also call them EGDs, esophago-gastro-duodenoscopy, where they go in through your mouth and go down and look in your stomach and in the upper part of your duodenum. They're looking for ulcers and things like that, you know, irritation. They put and a tube was, down there. Yes. We don't actually go in. Yes. And then um, sometimes they also do, um, they would do screening or not just screening, but colonoscopies too, where they go up your colon and look too for polyps and tumors Mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so we did, I did that for about a year. I worked in the NICU for about a year and a half. And then I did um, endoscopy for about a year and a half. And then my husband retired from the air force and we moved to just North of Tampa, Florida. Mm where I was hired to teach an LPN program here in Tampa, in the Tampa area. And I was, I had gotten a job working also in a level three neonatal ICU. The levels determine um, like the amount of care, you know, um, like a, a level one might be a, a well baby nursery, babies that are born and are perfectly healthy and are just, we just observe them maybe for 24 hours or so before they go home with their parents, but they don't really have, any needs, you know, they don't have any um, um, errors in metabolism or anything like that that we have to address, that they're very stable. Level two, they may need antibiotics or a little bit of oxygen in their nose or something. Um, then level three tends to be babies that maybe need um, to be put on a ventilator to help them breathe, or that maybe they're extremely early or just very ill. So that's a level three NICU. And so I worked in a level two NICU, level three NICU here in Tampa area. And um, when you have kids that are sicker for the, for a level, if you're in a level two and the kids are too sick to be there, then they're transferred to a level three at, at another facility somewhere. But I worked at a level three and then I was hired to work hospice out of the blue, which um, I was really surprised how much I enjoyed because uh, the bulk of my career was around babies so I didn't get to spend a lot of my career around the older generation, which was the bulk of my hospice patients. I would go and evaluate patients and do an assessment on them to see if they were appropriate for hospice level of care yet. And then I would enroll them in hospice care. And it was a fantastic experience. So now I do something, it's called injection training. I'm a nurse educator. So I go teach patients how to give themselves medication that has to be given through an injection. So that's what I teach now. So you've gone from the beginning with the neonatal units to the end with the hospice and also in education and you're an EMT, a lot of things going on. And so nursing was an important part of your life, but then you had some, uh, some physical issues that started to come about. Tell us about your first physical issue and when it happened. I had 
my first of two strokes on December 15th, 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, When it happened, I thought, immediately I thought the nurse in me said, oh, I think this is a stroke. (laughs) But then the human part of me, other than the nurse part, the regular person said, wait, it can't be a stroke. And so then when my uh, family member called the ambulance and took me to the emergency room, the emergency room doctor confirmed that, yes, indeed, I'd had a stroke. I had lost the whole left side of my body's function. I couldn't feel it, and I couldn't move it. So I spent five days in the hospital, and then I was transferred to a rehab hospital that, um, through physical and occupational therapy, helped me regain use of my the left side of my body. How old were you? 44. Okay, so 44, in the middle of your nursing career, and you have a stroke. It's the end of your career, potentially. But I thought, yes. So what? So you went through your physical rehab and you decided, well, I can't go back to nursing. What else should I do, right? Yes. And, and I had applied for disability and I'd been turned down. They said I could probably do something sedentary, but I would never work as a nurse again. Mm-hmm. And But the thing is, is the nurse part of my brain was still very active. And it was very frustrating not being able to use it on a day-to-day basis. So... I just um, applied for jobs and got interviewed, and when somebody hired me, I went to work. So I just muscled through it. What do you think drove you there? I don't mean, dr- you know, like a car. Like what, a car. <laughs> what was the driving force that, that made you still want to be a nurse, even though you had some of these disabilities? It's that absolute, um, the absolute joy and fulfillment that a nurse experiences when a patient does well under her care. It's, that's everything. Mm. Beautifully. Well said. Okay, so you you got through your stroke, you started applying for jobs, and what did you start doing? Well, initially I was hired as a case manager for a large insurance company, mm-hmm. and it was all um, work on the computer, which um, I found that I really didn't like because you, really you didn't really get to interact with patients, and that tends to be what I'm the best at as a nurse. And so I only did that like just over a holiday. <laughs> maybe three weeks or so. And fortunately, they came and told us that they didn't need us anymore, so they let us all go. So I was free. <laughs> and then I applied for a um, position as a, um assistant director of nursing for a private duty home health agency mm-hmm. where I got to interact and care for um, lots of patients in, with different ailments, even some other stroke patients. And I found them to be very inspiring, and they found me to be inspiring. So it was actually... It was wonderful. Beautiful. You know, as we go along, part of part of what we're always trying to do on this show is to give incentives for young people and older people that might be looking for a career in something. And one of the things that's coming out here, obviously, is by becoming a nurse, it offers a lot of opportunities, certainly in many fields of nursing. But also, if something happens to you, you can still continue to do something always and and be vital. Definitely. Yeah, so now you're doing that, and then what happened? Well, then in July of 2013, I was working as that director, assistant director of nursing, and I was sitting at my dining room table um, doing paperwork on the patients I had seen that day, and my left leg fell asleep. And I kept thinking it was the way I was sitting, and I kept wiggling, and it would, um, it would kind of wake up just like you do when a limb falls asleep. And... Mm-hmm. Then at one point I would try to wiggle and I couldn't wiggle and my leg wouldn't wake up. 
So I tried to stand on it and it kept buckling. It wouldn't bear my weight. Well, long story short, I'd had another stroke and I had been on taking a low dose baby aspirin every day since my first stroke. So I was in disbelief that it was another stroke when they told me it was. But uh, for that stroke, they gave me a medication called TPA, Tissue Plasminogen Activator, I believe is what it stands for, which is a a huge clot-busting drug in the emergency room that I was at. They gave it to me through an IV and um, admitted me to ICU. And 26 hours after I received that medication, I was able to lift my left leg up again. So it dissolved that stroke because I was able to get to the emergency room within, I think the new um, parameter is four and a half hours. You have to be able to get in and get, um, they do a CAT scan on your head and they do some lab work and they examine you and um, to be, make sure you're cleared to take this medication because it can be very dangerous. And then they put me in ICU afterwards and gave me a little bit of therapy and turned me loose. And I went right back to work. (laughs) I was actually back to work a week later. Now, now, Nicole, did you have to continue on that medication? I yes. Now I do take. Um, after the second stroke, I we the, my doctors worked a little harder to find out what was causing them, and found mm-hmm. out that I have a um, auto acquired autoimmune condition called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which I've probably had for many years. And so the, they initially started me on a different type of blood thinner, but it didn't work. So now they have me on two adult aspirin twice a day. And that's how we try to keep my blood thin to keep me from having another stroke. And there's, there's no other way of preventing um, uh, that's that from happening in the means of away from the aspirin. Like, is there any other changes or is that just a, an autoimmune system deficiency that you have and have had, and there's no way to regulate that? There's no way to regulate it. It's just something my body does. It overclots my blood. That's all it is. Wow. So it's not, um, you know, uh, commonly, you know, we hear of stroke patients as it being something like high blood pressure or high cholesterol, mm-hmm. you know, maybe diabetics are more prone to strokes, but um, I didn't have, or high, you know, I don't have high cholesterol, high blood pressure. I don't have high blood sugar. I don't have any of those things. Mm. So um, one by one, we're ruling everything out. And then we were still left with, you know, I'd had strokes and we didn't know why. So Mm. they sent me to a hematologist. That's a doctor whose specialty is your blood. Mm -hmm. And he started running a bunch of tests and he finally found that I had that antibody that makes me clot too much. So you're, you're living with that in your mind all the time right now, and you had your second stroke, and now it's time to say, maybe I shouldn't be nursing anymore. Maybe I should just retire and uh, just do other things. But that doesn't sound like you, though, was it? No, because how do, you, how do you put the nurse part of your head away and say, you know what, you're not going to be um, productive every day. You're not going to interact with patients it it just doesn't work that way. It's it's too strong. It just it calls the shots. So that's what rules the roost. <laughs> <laughs> right. Do you think about it every day? The possibility of another stroke, or is that yes. something completely out of your brain? No, I think about it every day. Mm-hmm. And how does that influence you in in terms of uh, work and dealing with patients? It means live life to the fullest because you never know what's right around the corner. And even though 
you're otherwise healthy, there could still be something going on that you're not aware of. And so, you know, it if it takes your life, not all strokes are just disabling. Some can be fatal. And if it's something that takes your life, I mean, if you can think about it ahead of time, would you really want to not have um, achieved these goals you had set out for yourself and enjoyed your life while you were while you were around to live it? You know, mm. so I think it's really important that you push on and push forward. Yeah, that's the heart and soul of nursing that we talk about and nurse consciousness. Uh, what about your support system? How did you uh, get support for this? Well, I was going to say um, a couple different ways. There aren't. Um, it's not uh, that common for somebody um, my age to have had a stroke. Um, it's, you tend, it's something you tend to associate with people who are older. And so um, generally the, um, the support systems out there are for people not like me. So um, fortunately, I had another young person in my family, fortunately, me, fortunately for me, but unfortunately for her, who also had a stroke about six weeks before my first one. And she was also in her early forties. Um, and so she and I, uh, we kind of, we commiserate, but we try to do a lot of things together that, that you wouldn't think a person who'd had a stroke could do. You know, we, um, we're both, uh, very independent. We both work in healthcare and we both, um, we're concerned about loss of independence. And, um, we, both um, would just, until we were able to get like up off the floor ourselves, we would lay in the middle of her living room floor and wiggle and reposition until we figured out ways to get up on our own without help. That's great. <laughs> so things like that, we um, both relearned how to swim after our strokes because um, that was one of the things that our strokes took away from us, which was surprising because we were both really strong swimmers prior to our strokes. And then all of a sudden, we, after our strokes, we got in our pools because she has a swimming pool too, and um, we couldn't swim, and it really threw us off. So we we kept at it, and we got it back. Right. That's amazing. Now, now um, the reason why she might have had a stroke is it similar? No, she had colon cancer, oh. and cancers um, tend to make the patients more likely to develop clots. Mm. You know, and so that's what hers came from. She also has something, a hole in her heart called a patent foramen ovale, which is um, something that babies have before they're born. So when they're in the uterus, in the womb, that's one of the ways they receive their blood back and forth from their mother. And so when a baby is born and they enter the air environment, they start breathing and using their lungs, their um, fetal network closes. And that's one of the things that normally closes. But there's a pretty significant portion of the population that has a part of their fetal network that has stayed open. And for my sister-in-law, it wasn't an issue until she developed colon cancer and threw a clot and it went through there and went to her brain. Wow. Okay. So now you've had your second stroke and where are you working now I, at uh, that time? So I had stayed a little bit working for the um, private duty home health agency for about, I stayed there for about a month after my, my second stroke. And then I had a big car accident, not because of the stroke. Fortunately, I was fine. And then, so I left that and then um, went into the injection training position. They hired me for that, which um, is 
fabulous because the patients are, um, they can have multiple sclerosis, which can be quite disabling. And mm-hmm. I find them to be very inspiring because some of them just push through it and continue on with their lives. I've trained nurses and accountants and lawyers and homemakers and people that just had babies and they just keep going. It's fantastic. You know, it's interesting when you say that because I'm reflecting a little bit of my own life and this is another example of how nurses are so powerful in the sense that you loved neonatal units, you loved the emergency department, and now you're loving teaching people about injections. Whereas I, when I got into an accident after being in the emergency department, I couldn't imagine uh, working anywhere but an emergency department. Uh, that's one of the reasons I became a medical guide. I couldn't figure out anything else I would do that would give me the same joy. So I honor you for uh, continuing that process of finding joy in every single part of of nursing and healthcare. So nice work. Thank you. Okay, so where you you're seeing the process right now. You're seeing you're you're a nurse. You've had some disabilities, and you I'm sure you meet other nurses that have disabilities and areas of frustrations and processes that uh, you'd like to see changes in nursing. What did you do about that? Well, I um, realized that I, um, I did have some former nurse co-workers who I had stayed in touch with after um, my strokes and everything. And so I, we would meet and talk, and I realized that we um, didn't really have anything um, set up you know, or established where we could interact and we could seek each other out for support and even mentoring new nurses. How do you tell somebody, okay, if you have something happen and, you know, now you're disabled or you can no longer do that, how do you change careers? How do you, how do you switch gears? And um, so I, in January of 2015, decided to start the Professional Nurses Association. I started it as a closed group on a social media website, and it has grown in one mm-hmm. year to over 5,000 nurses, and it's strictly for nursing professionals. So we have nursing students, we have certified nurses aides, we have licensed practical nurses, we have registered nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, PhDs in nurses in nursing, we have educators, we run uh, certified registered nurse anesthetists, we have the whole gamut. And so we interact there and share ideas and discuss um, current events in nursing, things that are going on, things that, uh, trends that we're concerned about, uh, deficiencies in our healthcare um, practices and systems and profession, and try to um, brainstorm what, solutions, things to fix those things. So you did this, it started a year ago, in 2015, you said, right? January yes. of 2015, this is exactly one year mm-hmm. now. How did you come up with this as an idea? Well, I just, I, you know, I was, I had looked for, um, for other, I know there are other professional nursing organizations out there, but I, and I had been a member of them over my career, but I didn't really feel like any of them were really active in the community, and so I, I felt like there, there needed to be something where we could um, get out there and get to, um, to the people and help them improve their health. And that was, that's through education. And so I think I wanted a way for that we could be accessible for the community also. This is 
interesting because normally uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you would have to go through all sorts of uh, protocols and programs and governmental agencies and things like that. But you just decided to do it on Facebook or something? Yes. I just did did it. And it started with me, one nurse. But over the years, um, over 20 years, I had um, have had a lot of colleagues that were nurses and this, that was the way we managed to stay um, connected with each other and keep track of each other's lives and everything. So I just, I added myself first to this group. I made sure it was closed. And then all of my friends that were nurses, um, I added them and then they invited their friends and it just kept spiraling and getting bigger and bigger. And now we're over (laughs) 5,000. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it's beautiful. So is it basically everyone, all 5,000 are in Florida? No, we're actually global. We have nurses in um, Indonesia, India, Uganda, Nigeria, um, Norway, the Netherlands, Botswana, the Philippines. We have nurses from all over. and But it's mostly nurses in the United States. But we're there. It seems like um, our members are in pockets everywhere. So one nurse will um, be added, and then she'll add everybody that she knows that lives in her um, geographical area. So then we have a large pocket in these little geographical areas. We have quite a few in Texas, in Florida, in North Carolina. Um, we have a couple up in the um, Idaho, Oregon area. Um, we have Patty, who's up in uh, Iowa, near Wisconsin. We have uh, quite a few in Ohio, Virginia, so they're all over. How does how does someone become part of that, and do you have to be a nurse to be part of that? You have to be in the nursing profession, so either a certified nursing aide, a nursing student, you know, or all the way up to a Ph.D. in nursing. You're welcome in the Professional Nurses Association. And how do they find out about it? Well, you can go on Facebook, and you can... Um, search for us. We're a closed group, so you have to get approval to be brought into the group, but we're also opening our own website, which was supposed to open yesterday, but it's now not due to open until February 15th, 2016, Mm. Mm. and that's at com. You want to say that one more time? Yes, www.professionalnursesassociation.com. That's great. I really like that. And so tell us a couple of things that you actually do. One of the things that I'm interested in is I think you said a few moments ago that sometimes there are problems in nursing, right? Uh, or there's discrepancies in certain treatments here versus there. Uh, how does how do you learn from, say, other countries that might be more advanced? You said you were in Norway and Botswana. Do you learn things from them, nursing practices that they do, that you bring back to the United States? And does it happen vice versa also? That is what we do attempt to do. We have discussions back and forth where we talk about what works, you know, wherever you're working as a nurse. What has worked in other places maybe have worked, you know, comparing, you know, the nursing care I I was um, involved in in Texas versus California or, or Montana or Florida, and just like people from other countries will will chime in and say, "Oh, this is what we do here," and so our hope is that by um, 
we can maybe um, see what works elsewhere and maybe incorporate that into the health care that we provide here. Do you have an example of something? Um, just, uh, I was going to say, I'm trying to think of, um, actually, um, one of the things we were talking about was, um, uh, caring for the insertion point where you put a central line in, in a patient to, um, minimize bloodstream infections mm-hmm. that may occur because, um, you know, that area bacteria can get under the dressing and get in where the um, central line is inserted. So that was one of the things that we were discussing. And, and when you come up with something, you, you're not, uh, I'm guessing you're not an official association that's, rec- are you recognized by the registered nursing organizations and things like that? No, nothing like that yet, no. So this is just uh, social media, not just, this is fantastic actually, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it's strictly nurses talking to nurses and trying to figure things out. When you come up with an idea from somewhere how do you implement that possibly into a hospital? How does that change? Or how do you in- implement that into your programs that you're doing with education, for example? Well, one of the things we try to do is we try to have um, groups of nurses within our association that um, tackle issues like that and come up with solutions. Mm-hmm. As an example, one of the things that um, some of our members like to do are community health fairs where we will go and offer free blood pressure screenings and temperatures and, you know, even we'll even check your blood sugar off your finger for you and um, give you a little card where you can record the results and then turn that into your primary care physician or practitioner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we also volunteer um, for a local um, free health and wellness center and then for a place that um, uh, caters to the homeless population in my area. And so I will go and do, um, we call them vital signs when you have your blood pressure and your heart rate and your temperature taken. I will go and do that before they see our nurse practitioner, who's also one of our members. Mm-hmm. Christina, any thoughts? Oh, my goodness. I, I don't, I, that's a lot to be a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> they should rule the roost, Glenn. <laughs> They they absolutely do. Yes. I, Nicole, I just love what you've done, uh, uniting nurses all around the world. I think that in itself is is huge because um, for you all to be able to share your experiences and what you do, and the practices all over the world are so different from one another. Definitely. That, that's very exciting. You know, that, that, that's one thing wonderful about the internet. It's really given us the um, the the pathways to be able to connect. Yes, definitely. Yes. Oh my goodness. We have to share that with our nurse friends now. <laughs> now, now, do you ever have uh, meetings with the nurses from other countries and places like that, or where they all can actually get together and meet each other in person? Have you done that yet? That hasn't happened yet, but that's on the table is something that we've been contemplating is having a large convention where all the professional nurses association nurses can get together and exchange ideas in person that way, like a big convention or, you know, we've talked about going on a cruise and doing that too. Oh, that would be great. So what other things do you see in the future that will be on the table for the NPA? For the PNA? Yes. The PNA, um, sorry. We'd like to, um, um, we're looking for corporate sponsorship because we would like to provide uh, nursing scholarships to nursing students. Oh, nice. And, and we 
don't feel like any nurse should, any person that desires to be a nurse should have a student loan debt. It should be paid for because we as a society benefit from their endeavor to become a nurse. So why should they have a financial burden to do something that benefits us? That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I like so that's that. what we're trying to do. What other kind of things are you looking for in the future in terms of, are you looking to, for example, uh, start to work with other professional nursing organizations? Definitely. We would love to do that. We would also like to um, get out in the community more and maybe um, provide more education, maybe through um, through videos or something that they can watch. And maybe even, um, we also have a, um, something we're working on currently where it's, um, uh, advice um, to um, care for a loved one or something that we um, want are going to try to put together in a um, printed format that people can purchase and use as a guide to care for their loved ones. Uh, <clears throat> explain that a little more. Caring for their loved ones when they're sick or dying or just yes. in general? In general, you know, I was going to say, it's um, not something that in our country is... Um, is commonly taught. We're not teaching our children how to care for our older population. And no matter how much we fight, we're all getting older. And so, you know, eventually there's going to be a time where we're not able to be um, quite so independent and care for ourselves. And how do family members know when that is? And what kind of care needs is their loved one going to have? Are they going to be able to bathe themselves? Are they going to be able to feed themselves? How is all of that going to happen? And who's go- and what we'd like to do is teach family members how to do that to save them and the patient a lot of frustration. Wow, this is, this is just really great stuff. I, I love the idea that you put this whole thing together. Started in your own mind after, you know, an entire career, two strokes, autoimmune disease, knowing anything could happen in any moment. And now you have over 5,000 nurses around the world uh, as part of a reach-out program that are trying to make things better for us. You know, <laughs> it basically, it always comes down to us. I mean, you know, nurses take care of us. You guys are why we do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we appreciate that. What would you what would you say is the most frustrating part of nursing for you? Or was? Sincerely, um staffing, you know, they will give one nurse a lot of patients, mm. too many patients to be able to, you know, safely care for. The expectations, the demands on the nurse are quite high and they're pretty unrealistic. And um, it would be very nice if in our world that, that was, there was awareness made of that because um, I think there's this perception that when you go into a facility and you're receiving nursing care, that that is your nurse. And I don't, it's not shared that that's your nurse, but that nurse happens to also have seven other patients. And that's um, really too much for one nurse to be able to care for and be able to provide the kind of quality nursing care that patients expect and that they pay for. And is that something that uh, you talk about in your program? We actually talk about it quite a bit, you know, and um, I had years, many years ago when I lived in California, 
um, there was a nursing organization that did manage to pass through the um, the state government mandatory uh, nurse patient staffing ratios, mm-hmm. and those went into effect while I was working in the emergency room at oh. our hospital. And okay. um, it really did make a difference because you know when we had a patient in the emergency room that was going to be admitted to like the medical surgical floor, if that nurse already had six patients, she could not take another patient. They had to get another nurse in to work to take the next patient because no nurse down there could have more than six patients. And I guess a couple years after I left, one of the nurses told me that they had changed it so that in the emergency room, one nurse couldn't take care of more than four patients at a time. So, you know, that's that's better for the patients because then if they have a condition that they're developing symptoms with their signs, you know, the nurse can watch them a little more closely. Mm-hmm. So if you had to do it all over again, would you be a nurse? Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> you know, we're coming to the end of the show, uh, Nicole. And I wonder first, before we get to our health tip, if, in preparing for this show, there was anything you wanted to uh, make sure that you talked about uh, that we haven't possibly discussed today? I don't think so. I think, um, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, we covered it all. So time for a health tip, and this should be interesting from someone yeah. who's had all of your experiences. <laughs> yes. Let's hear it. Okay. My health tip is, no matter your age, have a discussion with your healthcare provider about starting aspirin therapy. Don't just do it on your own. Have that discussion at your very next appointment. Hmm. I, I think that that's a very important thing that you bring up because, so, you know, and thank you for that because, you know, aspirin is part of our everyday lives. You know, somebody gets a headache, take an aspirin. Somebody has a fever, sometimes take an aspirin. Somebody has a pain in their back or a sprained an ankle, you take an aspirin. So aspirin has become one of these things that it's just uh, something we have in the kitchen cabinet and we don't even think about twice. But aspirin also has many other uh, attributes, but some of these are actually things that you're doing more of a treatment and a therapy and prevention rather than uh you know, to take care of a pain or a fever or something like that. So I think the thing that you brought up that was really important is to have the discussion because aspirin, like everything else, uh, has side effects. And there are certain people that will certainly benefit from aspirin, and there are certainly people that may have some complications from aspirin. So that's why I think when you say have the discussion with your doctor, uh, that's a great health tip. Thank you. I hope many of your viewers take it to heart and go do it. <laughs> it's interesting you say take it to heart because most of us, you know, when we're taking aspirin. It's, uh, <laughs> it's to prevent heart attacks. Well, it can prevent strokes too. And a brain, a stroke is called a brain attack. So, you know, it's another attack. <laughs> yeah, a certain kind of a brain, a stroke. That's right. Yeah. And that's why it's really important because there are certain types of strokes that it may not be uh, a good idea to take that. Right. But that's great. 
Very grateful to our special guest, Nicole Graves, who is a colleague and a friend of mine. We worked together for many years, and thank you so much, Nicole, for sharing your wisdom and experience with us. I'd also like to thank all of my teachers and my healers for keeping me on my journey. Thank you, Christina and Yoga Hub and all of our viewers and listeners to our uh, show, Magical Medical Tour. We keep trying to bring good things to you to give you information on careers and knowledge of ways of becoming healthier. So until next time, thank you so much, Nicole, and I wish you all optimal health. Thank you so much, Doc Woolman, and of course, Nicole, what a wonderfully moving uh, topic that you brought up about caring for others, and, and your journey has been magnificent, and thank you so much for sharing with our community. And thank if, you for having me. Absolutely. Um, and we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to learn more about um, Nicole Graves and her association that she's setting up right now, um, do check it out, professionalnursesassociation.com, Professional nursesassociation.com and by the sounds of it that website shall be up and active on February 15th and if you would like to connect with our Dr. Glenn Woolman do so through his website glennwoolman.com where of course we encourage you to learn more about his metaphor square breath now you can also follow him, follow him on Facebook at The Medical Guide The Medical Guide Again, we are always grateful for any feedback and comments that you might have. Um, plug it into that comment box on the site or just give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, namaste. Namaste. 